Welcome to the Jurisprudence, a podcast on jurisprudence. I'm Nikos Stavropoulos. And I am George Letzas. Hi, Nikos. Hi, George. The topic today is free speech and social media, Nico, and we have a guest. We do. We are very honored to have uh, my colleague here with us, Jeffrey Howard, who is the expert on the topic. Hi, gentlemen. Good to be with you. So Jeff actually is working on a big project. Uh, He won a UK Research and Innovation Fellowship recently to work on the regulation of social media and free speech issues online. John and I thought we, we should talk about a topic which is really your field, which is to what extent social media platforms have duties to adjust and moderate or otherwise tweak their content in some way and whether, in case they do have such duties, whether it's okay for government to try and enforce such duties. And the occasion for talking about this, as far as I'm concerned, for me personally, was the recent litigation in the States, where Texas passed a law to try to make platforms treat all content equally, subject to very few exceptions for directors, incitement, and such like. It mandated that social platforms do not discriminate based on viewpoint, and the platforms were not amused, they won court. Uh, it was pretty convoluted. We don't need to go into the technical details of the American appellate process, but they went to court and they got an injunction that enjoined Texas from enforcing the statute. And then the Texas Attorney General went to the circuit court. And after months of submitting briefs, suddenly the Fifth Circuit issued a one-sentence stay order that put on hold the injunction. It was one sentence with a footnote saying that it's not unanimous. And then the platforms went to Supreme Court and the Supreme Court in a divided decision 5-4 vacated the stay of the injunction. There are many negatives here. So the end result is that the statute has been put on hold. I'm not proposing that we talk about that, but we should talk about the underlying issue, which I mentioned at the outset, which is do platforms have duties to moderate content in some way, to curate content in some way, and to the extent that they have these duties, who gets to make them, if anyone, to meet that responsibility? It's interesting, the lawsuit you mentioned, Nikos, that they invoked the First Amendment. So yes. it's not just the question about whether platforms have duties, but whether the, those duties include the law, whether the people who use the platforms are exercising free speech rights, and whether the platforms are addressees of people's free speech rights. And that, to me, is of great interest, but it it kind of is not the only question, right? Because you might talk about duties in general. Let me clarify something here, because it may not be clear to anyone who has not been following the news. Both sides are claiming the First Amendment protections. So Texas says the First Amendment protections imposes on the platforms a duty to allow any content, regardless of viewpoint, obviously tailored to help conservative content get boosted, but their idea is that the First Amendment imposes on the platforms a duty to allow such content on the platforms. On the other hand, the platforms themselves are saying the First Amendment actually prohibits Texas from interfering with this business. But let's not talk about the technicalities of the law or the appellate process. I think we should be interested in the underlying issue. So my view is that social media platforms have quite stringent duties to take action against various forms of harmful speech. Paradigmatically, this would include speech that we already think is properly criminalized, so forms of criminal incitement. I would argue the most serious forms of hate speech are all properly criminalized, and therefore it's reasonable to expect the platforms to take action against such content. Why is it reasonable to demand that of platforms, you might wonder? Just because speakers have duties not to engage in certain speech, it doesn't follow that no one should give them a platform Mm -hmm. for engaging in such speech. And I think there are a few different moral duties in play here. So one moral duty, which doesn't get you a whole lot, but gets you some of the way, is just a basic duty of rescue. So I think that platforms are just in the right place at the right time to protect people from harm. Mm -hmm. And if they can take action to defuse a threat at reasonable cost, they are under an obligation Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think familiar mechanisms of what's called notice and takedown, whereby when you notify the platform that there's some harmful criminal speech, they have a duty to remove it within some time frame, can be explained by a quite austere, uncontroversial duty that the platforms simply have by virtue of the fact that they're agents. 
Now, I don't think that will get you all the way to justifying mm -hmm. really demanding obligations that mm -hmm. platforms have to police for harmful speech, to take action against various forms of speech that aren't properly criminalized for speakers, but it does get you part of the way there. What do you think about another ground? So these corporations are market profit-making corporations, so they don't just facilitate the expression of other people's views, they make money off it. So one idea there is that insofar as they benefit from an activity, they should assume the, risk, the cost of the, of the risk that this activity generates. That is a well-known argument about other activities, not just publishing activities. Would that take us all the way? I think that's a plausible view. My view is that even if the platforms made no money, they would still have moral reasons, in fact, moral duties to take action against this content. The fact that they profit from it means, I think, that it's reasonable to demand that they invest more of their own resources into the practice of, of what's called content moderation. So the further duty that I have in mind is a duty to avoid complicity with users' harmful speech. And my thought is that one way to be complicit in the wrongs committed by others is to provide them a platform in which they can perpetrate those wrongs. So the reason the Taliban were complicit in the crimes committed by al-Qaeda is that they provided them a space in which they could perpetrate those crimes. I don't think it's necessary to share the principal wrongdoer's intention mm. to count as morally complicit mm. in what they do. And furthermore, I think it's, it's crucial to notice in this context that platforms don't simply provide a space for this harmful speech, but through the algorithmic designs of the platform, they actively serve to amplify. They don't necessarily seek to amplify. They serve to amplify this harmful speech, enabling it to reach larger audiences and therefore cause greater harm. And with that, the stringency of their duties to take action against some speech is increased in my view. This raises an, a point which is a fundamental conceptual difficulty with the idea that platforms are hosting content. And sometimes we may think about it as if the content just gets posted on Twitter or on Facebook or, or on Instagram or on YouTube, and that's it. That's the end of the story. And the question is whether YouTube or Twitter or Facebook should hunt down for it and remove it if it falls in those categories that you mentioned. But that's not how it works at all. If you just put something up on Facebook, nobody's going to see except for yourself. Maybe people who follow you. But that's not what Facebook is doing. That's not this business model. It's not really just a bulletin board. What it does is that it has this algorithm you mentioned, and it identifies content that serves on others for the purpose of improving engagement and therefore improving his proposition to the advertisers. So they make money out of it, not just passively, but by actively choosing what content to push on whom. So the intentional agency of the platform is engaged. And the point need not be that the platforms intend for this specific harmful speech sure. to reach larger audience. The point is simply that they install mechanisms that foreseeably lead to that consequence, and they do so in order to, to make money. But Jeff, how does that argument, the two you mentioned, the easy rescue argument and the complicity argument, how are these different from the moral duties that used to apply to the press in the old days, so newspapers, for example? Would you apply the same arguments to printing or publishing press as you did for online platforms? Given the billions of pieces of content that flow across these platforms every week, I don't think it's plausible to think of them as the same kind of entities as traditional newspapers, where it really is right to hold them accountable for each and every piece of speech that's officially published on their platform. I say officially published because comment sections of newspaper websites raise all sorts of issues and start to blur the nature of these entities a bit. But with respect to social media platforms, I think it's very clear that what they do is provide a space where people can provide their own contributions to important discourses. And the principal speakers are these individual users. The question then is when you set up such a space, what are your obligations to reduce reasonably foreseeable harms? And I think that's a distinct normative basis than the newspapers. In other words, I think you could probably demand more of the newspapers than it would be reasonable to demand of the social media platforms. Appealing to the fact that you mentioned that these billions of contributions that they have no real control over, or it's very hard to control in this algorithmic manner, the platforms have managed to get Congress to give them a liability shield. So unlike the newspaper, Facebook or Twitter is not liable for defamatory content that gets posted there. They will remove it if you notify them, but they have no liability for the underlying tort. 
I think we should distinguish between different kinds of harmful content. Imagine the kind of investigative power that platforms would need to possess if they had a duty to ensure that no defamatory speech ever occurred on the platform. I think it would probably exceed what it is reasonable of platforms to undertake. And therefore, it's no surprise that platforms content rules don't include rules against libel and defamation. They include rules against the kinds of generic speech that you can use AI to identify and take down, which wouldn't be plausible when we're talking about libel and defamation. George, can you tell us a little bit about how Europe looks at that kind of speech? One difference I see with the American model, and, and this relates more to, not to the moral duties of platforms, but to the legal duties as well, is the idea that in any platform, you're going to have a lot of users who exercise constitutional rights of free speech. And the idea there is that even though it's a private relation, it's a relation between the user and the platform, the state has a positive obligation to make sure that within that private relationship, rights are properly respected. But what do we move on, Jeff? As you mentioned the obligation, the moral obligations of platforms vis-a-vis illegal content. How about lawful content that nevertheless might be awful? So it seems plausible that platforms have a moral responsibility to take some action. We might disagree about exactly how onerous that action should be but some action against illegal content. What about content that poses various harms but isn't illegal? So we might think of all varieties of of misinformation or we might think of speech that encourages self-harm. Platforms are increasingly adopting rules against this kind of content voluntarily. Now, most people don't see an especial problem with platforms having rules that are more onerous than, say, the criminal law has. But what about when the state regulates those platforms in such a way as to force them to take action against speech that, if uttered by you or me on the street, would be perfectly legal? And here, we are seeing a development in precisely that direction. So, for example, the online safety bill in the United Kingdom will saddle platforms with the responsibility to take action against speech that poses distinctive risks to children. And so the picture that emerges there is that while a speaker will commit no crime, by engaging in that speech, platforms will have a responsibility to take action against it. And a lot of people don't like that. They say what should be legal online should be legal offline, what should be illegal online should be illegal offline. But philosophically, I'm not sure why that should necessarily be true. There is all sorts of reasons that figure into an all things considered assessment of what the criminal law should contain. So would you look at the effects of online speech vis-a-vis in-person speech? So clearly, like you said, if you say something to a friend or to a group, it won't have the same effect as if you put it up on YouTube. So is it merely in terms of the effects that you're worried? It's certainly principally in terms of the effects. So take a different example, climate misinformation. You uttering a piece of climate misinformation in the pub, we can debate whether or not that constitutes a moral wrong, but it's probably not going to have extremely serious harm. Contrast that with climate misinformation that's peddled online, that's aggregated and amplified in echo chamber contexts where it's highly unlikely to be challenged or countered, it seems plausible that the speech in that context could well pose harm such that it is plausible to restrict it in one context but not the other. And that's why I think we shouldn't be a priori opposed to these kinds of divergences between what the criminal law prohibits and what a justified scheme of regulations for platforms should be. Can you give an example of how the UK bill operates in respect of this kind of harmful speech? So climate misinformation likely does not fall within the the scope of the bill, but speech that endangers children is that kind of example. Now the bill's most onerous duties are with respect to illegal speech. And then there's going to be duties with respect to speech that's legal but harmful to children. And there will be required that platforms undertake risk assessments and implement protocols agreed with Ofcom, the telecommunications regulator, to limit children's access to that content and reduce its presence on the platform. There is a weaker third set of duties with respect to speech that's legal but harmful toward adults. And there the duties are extremely weak and only apply to the huge platforms. And they're basically duties to conduct risk assessments and be transparent about what the policies are with respect to such speech. This might include various forms of disinformation and misinformation, but there's no duty to remove the speech. So how does it distinguish between a big platform and a not big platform? 
there is a threshold of users really? that makes the difference. I see. That can be a problem because the standard conservative complaint is that the big platforms suppress conservative content. Of course, it's a talking point, really. It doesn't happen. Facebook famously made a huge amount of money during the Trump years by boosting conservative content. And on the other hand, you have these small platforms which are very conservative and the content that gets posted there is really awful overall and they would escape any regulation. My other question is this, how about anti-vaxxers? Anti-vaxxers promote this idea that vaccines are risky, dangerous, shouldn't do it. And of course, this would have terrible effects for children. Would the UK bill make it unlawful for platforms to allow anti-vaxxer content on their platforms? To my knowledge, it would not necessarily make it unlawful, but it depends on what exact codes of practices are worked out under the powers that the bill grants to the Secretary of State and to Ofcom. There's a lot of details that the bill leaves open. You could imagine a future in which anti-vax speech was restricted on the platforms. But in the current version of the bill, as I understand it, it's not in there. I'm asking about anti-vaxxers because, of course, they are associated with the conservative movement. And I would be very surprised if the current government would make it unlawful for such content to be posted. The other thing that you mentioned is that in order to protect children, the platforms would have to restrict access of children to the platforms. And, of course, this is very unrealistic because the future of the platforms famously depends on recruiting children because as we grow older, we spend less. They must recruit the next generation or else they're dead. This is famously a very big Facebook initiative. The bill, as far as I understand it, wouldn't require the platforms not to let the children use them, but would rather require the platforms to institute, for example, age-gating technology which, as you will rightly point out, is highly unlikely to be especially effective. But the platforms will have duties to attempt to limit the exposure of certain harmful content So they would let children. It would allow children to sign on to get an account, yeah. but it wouldn't show them some content. That's right. So age 13 is the typical right. age. Based on what we know about social media, it's staggering that we allow children to use it to the extent that we do. And I think the more aggressive, responsible position on this issue would be to force the platforms not to allow children on. Now, as you rightly will point out, loads of children will still get access anyway. But perfection is not our goal here. Jeff, if we leave aside the issue you mentioned about children, which is a vulnerable group, and maybe special moral principles apply there, it seems to me that the at least the UK Act, the way you described it, and a lot of the duties you mentioned would capture the expression of opinion, which, if believed by the listener, would causally be linked to harm. And for some liberals, this might be a problem because insofar as there are moral duties here, one moral duty would be to respect people's autonomy. So if someone is stupid enough to listen to a stupid view on the internet and then go and act on it and cause harm, that's his responsibility, it's not the responsibility of the platform. Would the platform be bound by the duty to recognize autonomy of listeners? So a couple of things we might say about that. So one thing we might say is simply at the level of platforms, moral duties, you might think that while the state has a moral duty to respect the autonomy of its citizens, it's not obvious that individual platforms have that moral duty. It certainly seems clear that if platforms have that moral duty, then they also, at least presumptively, they also have this other moral duty, which is not to allow their platforms to be weaponized to incite murder, for example. And so at the very least, the, the interests or the moral reasons that underpin each respective prima facie duty will then need to be compared to one another. And it does seem plausible that in at least a significant range of cases, the latter duty will outweigh the former. But addressing the question of whether the social media platforms may legitimately be forced by the state to restrict the speech, or whether that would contravene the kind of autonomy respecting argument for freedom of expression you just intimated, I think the prevailing view in the free speech literature is that while that argument has weight, it isn't decisive, it doesn't have absolute weight. The philosopher T.M. Scanlon, who originally defended a version of that argument, himself altered his view over time to recognize that, sure, while we all have an interest in being exposed to a diversity of views to make up our own mind, we also have interest in not being murdered in terrorist attacks. We also have interest in not being subjected to vile, toxic, racist hatred. 
and other interests that need to be figured in, into an all things considered analysis. We're still at the level of the moral duty. So suppose, as it's happening already, the big platforms self-regulate and they filter out speech which is likely to lead to harm and it tends to be in content awful. Now, that means that most of the public won't have any access to this. And that may include people who won't believe any of it, but they still want to know what these people say. Shouldn't we worry about those people? Doesn't it disrespect, so to speak, those people? Nagel famously made that point many years ago. He said, the idea that I need to be protected from those ridiculous people who are peddling Nazi memorabilia and claim that the Holocaust never happened, that idea offends me very deeply. I'd look at the issue slightly differently. So the question is, first, do speakers have moral duties not to endanger others through their speech, for example, by promoting harm? I want to argue that yes, they do have these moral duties. Then we ask, is it permissible to enforce those moral duties? And what we're contemplating now is an objection from prospective listeners who would say, no, we don't think you should enforce those moral duties of speakers because it would be insulting to us for you to enforce those moral duties. But of course, the reason we would want to enforce those moral duties is because the speech endangers or otherwise harms vulnerable people. And so what we need to do then is to compare the claim of those people who are endangered by that speech to have the duty enforced against the claim by prospective listeners not to have the duty enforced because of the putative educative benefits of exposure to white supremacy and Holocaust denial or this interest we have in making up our own mind. And I think it's plausible that for a lot of speech that poses some risk of harm, that autonomy, respect-based interest in making up our own mind will win out. But in cases of serious harms, it doesn't seem plausible to me that it... What about the environment you mentioned? So someone who is a climate change denier, it seems to me that you describe that as endangering speech, like speech that risks harm directly. And it is true, of course, that if you deny climate change online, that would spiral and be influential, and then people will stop acting on the environment, and there's a causal link that will lead to harm. But at the first level, it's just an opinion. Someone who denies climate change has an opinion about politics. They don't think we should be doing anything about that. So it's a political opinion to begin with. Now, we may look at it from a different perspective and say, well, that political opinion then could work in a way that will lead to harm. But that's through the operation of normal politics, right? By trying to influence each other's opinion and publicize our views. So at, at the first level, it's not really dangerous speech, right? It's just an opinion, I express an opinion. It's, it becomes dangerous by being accepted by others and then by being acted upon. But how would you then distinguish any opinion? Any opinion can be weaponized in that way. So I think all sorts of dangerous speech could possibly be described as a political opinion. A lot of terrorist propaganda sure. it takes the form of a political opinion. The crucial question to ask is whether there is a moral duty to refrain from expressing that political opinion on the grounds that it clearly endangers others. And if the causal links are highly tenuous and it's just not plausible that the speech actually is dangerous, mm -hmm. then of course we should exercise caution and refrain from taking any action against this speech. The case of climate misinformation is interesting, though, because I take it that in a huge range of contexts, it doesn't breach a moral duty to express that view because it's not plausible that it will endanger anybody. But in certain online contexts where that speech is aggregated and amplified, especially in an echo chamber where it's not subjected to contrary views, what we might say in that context is, well, we're not going to punish the speaker for expressing the view, but the manager of the platform in which the view is expressed has duties to take measures to mitigate its harmfulness. Now, we've talked about removing content as one of those measures, but I think it's important to mention that there are others as well, which is altering algorithmic designs in ways that reduce echo chambers, that open up possibilities for counter speech. Rather than outright removing content, demote or de-amplify the content so that you change the overall balance of the information ecology so that it's a, a healthier system. Now, a lot of people are not going to like the idea of these big tech companies manipulating the pattern of discourse. But they are, inevitably. But they, but they are anyway, yes. and they ought to do it in a way that's beneficial rather than deleterious for democracy and individuals. I should say here that Jeff has published a really, really excellent article defending this approach to dangerous speech in First Republic Affairs a couple of years ago now, 2020, <laughs> which I strongly recommend reading. So we've been talking about speech that has harmful effects and how to balance the various equities involved. But how about this other idea? 
that the speech that gets published on these platforms should be balanced. That is, to the extent that they boost some liberal views, they should counter that by boosting anti-liberal views. The BBC model. The BBC model. How about that idea? That is actually the kind of argument of Texas. They say the platforms are very powerful entities. They control the information that we are exposed to, and our information diet ought to be balanced, and it's their duty to see to it that it is. I don't think it's a crazy view. So some people are just going to say, these are private companies, they can have whatever speech policies they want, even if we grant that as a moral matter, they have to take down certain especially noxious, harmful speech. Beyond that, they could take down whatever additional speech they want to. If Mark Zuckerberg wakes up tomorrow morning and he says, you know what, I don't want any libertarian or socialist speech on Facebook, voila, it's no longer allowed on Facebook. And I think some people are inclined to say, private companies, no big deal. And I do think that misses something about the power and pervasiveness of these platforms as sites of public discourse. And what it misses, I think, is the idea that all of us have moral reasons to promote each other's speech interests and to promote a healthy discursive community. And because all of us, especially those managing important sites of public discourse, have these moral reasons, I think we would think that that was wrong for Mark Zuckerberg to decide that whole political views But should be shut out. Wouldn't the effect of that hypothetical be that the banned socialists would start their own platform? That might well be the, the consequence. It's not clear why that consequence would justify the policy. All of these platforms, rightly, I think, claim to be important sites of public discourse. If you look at their mission statements, if you look at what their self-understanding is, it is as spaces where citizens from all walks of life can come together and connect and discuss important issues. And I think, given their scale, it's appropriate for them to have that kind of mission statement. At the very least, they have moral reasons emanating from the commitments they've made. But I also think they have moral reasons to have undertaken those original commitments. So, that, I think, is the grain of truth in the idea that we do want the platforms to be somewhat even-handed. But I don't think it has the implications that some of these right-wingers in the U.S. think it has. So, Jeff, I'm not on any of those social media, but do people really use Facebook to take part in public discourse? It seems to me an idealized version of those platforms that people use them for. I think the platforms reflect all aspects of humanity. And so there's horrible stuff there, there's boring stuff there, but there's also important stuff like organizing the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and climate action and all sorts of important social just oriented campaigns get a lot of action on social media and have been very yeah. important to spreading sure. beneficial messages just as they've been important in spreading yeah. terrible messages. Sure, but the question is whether this function is incidental. So in the absence of those platforms, people would have found another way to coordinate the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, maybe through mobile phones or WhatsApp or text or... Is it uniquely their aim to promote public discourse or is it incidental? They are there to make money for the shareholders. Right. A few ideas were mentioned. One was that these are private entities and therefore may not be sub subject to any kind of regulation. But do we have to appeal to their private status? Or maybe we could resist this urge to regulate them by appealing to the fact that they disseminate content. And to the extent that they disseminate content, and inevitably they curate it, they exercise some kind of editorial control of it, over it. Again, I go back to what I said earlier. It's not really the case that someone posts something on Facebook and that's that. How do I get to see it? It has to be pushed on me by the Facebook algorithm, the Twitter algorithm. So we don't need to ask whether they're private or not, or whether they're powerful or not. It is simply their nature as operations of dissemination of speech. And to the extent that they disseminate speech, they get to have editorial control, and no one should mess with that. This is an idea that the courts have been using a lot. They're not saying, well, they're private, therefore you can't touch them. They're saying, it's not the government, it's not the public forum, it's not really the public square. It is closer to a newspaper than the town square. I think that's exactly right. So on one view, the platforms have the prerogative to exercise full editorial control however they see fit. If Mark Zuckerberg decides, decides that particular uh, political viewpoints are ones he personally disfavors, 
it's fine. They can decide to exercise editorial discretion to systematically suppress those viewpoints. I think that's a reasonable point of view. I also think it's a reasonable point of view that given the profound and pervasive power that these platforms have over public discourse, they have reasons to adopt a posture whereby they don't set out to suppress legitimate points of view. So if there's a particular political point of view that the heads of a particular company don't like, I think that they still have moral reasons to allow its expression, given the contingent, admittedly contingent fact that it just so happens that in our, in our current democracies, they are important sites of public discourse. But that, and this is the crucial point, that rules out certain illicit purposes. It doesn't require neutrality of treatment in consequence, because to your point, Nikos, there's no operationalizable way to require the platforms to give equal time to different kinds of content. Yeah. In part because, suppose you talk in terms of liberal or conservative content, I think it will be utterly hopeless to try to identify either, nor do I think it's plausible to think of it in terms of giving existing political parties equal time. Why should we think only in terms of existing political parties? So I think we need to think of what purposes is it legitimate for the platforms to act from, not what kind of outcomes do they have a duty to guarantee. The latter, I think, is, a, is hopeless. So there are two ways in which editorial control results in some content getting more exposure than other content. One is for some content to get outright banned, removed from the platform, which is something that the platforms do you know, billions of times a day or a month. So one way to suppress content is to just get rid of it. And another way to suppress content is simply to allow it on the platform, but not boost it, or not boost it as much as some other content. It is the latter where the indeterminacy really bites. You might think banning some content from the platform on the grounds that is liberal or libertarian or conservative, even if it could be done, would be unsavory, would be suspect. We might want to have another look there. But that's not really what these initiatives are about, right? That's right. The initiatives are about exploiting the massive power of the platforms to promote content and to exploit their power for political purposes. And the complaint is that conservative content doesn't get to use that big, fantastic political machine. And they want to be able to control that and use it. Now, I have to mention that we've been there before. So in the 70s, there was this big case that it is a big precedent in the Supreme Court of Tornillo. In Miami, a paper, Miami Herald, posted some content that the then Attorney General of Florida thought was defamatory. And he wrote to them, and he demanded that they publish his response. And Miami Herald said, no, we're not publishing it. And it went over to the Supreme Court. And the argument was made that the paper has huge power. It's not just a little paper. It is really very powerful in shaping views in Florida. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's right. The publishing business these days is not as we knew it in the past. They're very big conglomerates that own hundreds of newspapers and hundreds of radio stations across the country. They wield huge power. Also, we still have one paper towns, and in those towns, if you don't get your message on that paper, you can't get your message anywhere. But regardless, still, you can't tell the editors what to put on the paper. It's completely out of bounds. It's their business. The fact that they have, they have the power doesn't affect the matter either way. So they're unimpressed. They also consider this other argument that sometimes is made, which is very closely related to the power argument, the argument from the power that is publishing or media empires hold, which is the argument that whoever gets to monopolize a certain utility or public accommodation, they have a duty of even-handedness, a neutrality requirement. And the court, again, considered that argument in a series of cases, which are still precedents, we'll see what happens with the current court, and said that this kind of argument is very specific to the situation where you have a physical bottleneck. Also today, with the internet, that anyone can create any content and there's no limit to the internet, the, that argument for even-handedness that comes from the bottleneck has no application. So there's no bottleneck, and power alone cannot ground a duty of even-handedness. Can we still argue in his favor? 
So I want to be clear about my view, which is that I think given the scale of these platforms, they have moral reason to promote uh, diverse public discourse. But I see no plausible way of codifying that those moral reasons into any kind of legal duty for a number of the reasons that we've explored. And so accordingly, I think that the only real action at the level of regulation is what should we force the companies to take down? I think any attempt to put in place legal requirements for the companies to leave up certain content face much thornier challenges than the former question. And that's why I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about this kind of legislation. I want to press this point a little bit more. So let me say something about how Twitter works in my experience. When I signed up on Twitter, then I had to find people to follow, right? And of course, the people that I would follow are people whom I consider to be smart, interesting, have things to say. So I added 20, 30 Twitter users that I had come across. And then I was bored and I went back to see my timeline, what happened to it. And it was populated by the tweets of those 30 people or so that I had followed. And I thought, man, I'm right on everything. <laughs> I'm right about everything. Yeah. I got everything right. So this is how Twitter works, right? The, the, the echo chamber, right? Yes. It's hemophily. It's a natural cognitive bias to associate with people that <laughs> are like you, what you like. And, and so, it occurs offline as much as it occurs online. So how could Twitter try to comply with a very mild requirement to be even handed? I concede that I follow people who have a certain kind of political view. They tend liberal in the philosophical sense of the word. Would it just force me, serve me some tweets from conservative? Would it force me to read a piece by Barry Weiss in order to allow me to look at another piece by you know, Jonathan Chait? Cass Sunstein has called this the idea of serendipity on social media, the idea that people should be exposed to a diversity of, of different views. And so the question then is, given that the algorithm can be calibrated to reinforce your existing blind spots, or it can be <laughs> calibrated to try to reduce those biases and blind spots, it's not crazy to think it should do the latter rather than the former. It probably is crazy to think that we should force the social media companies to do it because I can't envisage how that regulation would be plausible. But the idea that in principle, given, as I say, their huge effect on the content and shape of public discourse, they ought to take steps to try to reduce the rancor, the toxicity, the hatred that infects our politics. It seems to me to be plausible that they do at very least have moral reasons to do that. What are people concerned with when they are worried about social discourse online becoming monolithic and not diverse or pluralistic? What is the worry there? Uh, is the idea that if our culture becomes monolithic, then it will be impoverished or will be failing up to our role as citizens? What, what is the concern there? So I don't think it's a concern that the culture is monolithic. I think the problem is that the different, the adherence to the different views don't engage in productive discussion with one another. Now, we've talked about the basic duties that the platforms might have to combat various forms of harmful content. But even once the platforms have done all of that, it still remains possible that there'll be lots of negative externalities of these platforms on our democracies. And I think one of those externalities is that there's a tendency for people on either side of the political spectrum to regard each other as enemies, that they see politics as a forum in which they are to vanquish and beat those who disagree with them, rather than a forum in which we debate with citizens with whom we have good faith disputes. And I do think that echo chambers do reinforce that toxic attitude that we have among our co-citizens. Now, what's interesting about this is that this can't be handled at the level of content moderation. When we talk about how much we detest and think our, detest our political opponents and think that they're utterly stupid morons or evil, none of that is going to be picked out by a hate speech policy, right? Certainly not a well-designed one. And yet, when aggregated and amplified in the contents of echo chambers, it's still bad for democracy. And so my thought is that platforms may have duties at the very least, to refrain from algorithmic designs that make us worse. I do wonder how much the externalities you mentioned are, are there and whether this polarization and echo chambers is a symptom of our political culture as opposed to the cause or a contributing cause to it. And I do think we have a very often nowadays very idealized 
conception of what the ideal citizen should be like and what, how debate should be taking place. And, and you look, look at Twitter and say, well, it shouldn't be like that. Mm. So people have the sort of the Athenian public square model of people exchanging views right. in, in a civic way. Uh, was it was it ever like that? No, I, I, Athens Athens aside, and just before the media, social media, we just didn't see it. You know, people would read their own their newspapers, their favorite newspaper. They would exchange unpleasantries in the in the pub, and then yeah, they they wouldn't read every newspaper. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> just, just their own. Exactly. They like exactly. So we just see more of it now. It's just as if internet has made our political culture worse. I think it's a really important point. Every horrible feature of human nature that we've seen historically <laughs> offline, we will see some manifestation of it off online. Mm. And in the context of American politics, I do think that the main driver of polarization has to do with structural features of the American political system that would be in place regardless of whether we had social media platforms. The question that I have in mind is whether platforms have negative duties to refrain from actions that make all this worse. And I think they do have such negative duties and that there is a risk that the platforms exacerbate problems that you are absolutely right would already exist. So we can agree with the point you just made. It was very disturbing to read the investigations about how Facebook behaved during the Trump years, how it exacerbated, supported, and made worse the toxicity of the content that it boosted. So there's something wrong there. But still, the big fear here is that we shouldn't let government get into this. And more abstract point that I think is pertinent to what we've been talking about today is this. Who owns culture? On one view, nobody does. So the shape of the culture is rightly determined by countless choices of countless people. And the internet seems to be very well suited to this kind of culture-shaping mechanism. Anyone can say anything on the internet, anyone can start their own platform. The abstract point still stands, which is that it's wrong for government to use its awesome power in order to try to shape culture, even if its motives are impeccable, if it tries to shape culture in a way that improves it. There's an especial worry that if we grant the state the ability to manipulate political culture in particular, there's all the reason in the world to expect it will do so to its own electoral benefit. Absolutely. And so there are special dangers, I think, with granting broad authority to the state to manipulate the overall pattern of the culture. And so I think extremely targeted regulations that require platforms to remove the most noxious content are much more easily justified than regulations that would empower the state to force the platforms to adjust the overall pattern or texture of the conversation. There, I absolutely agree with you that we want culture, as Samuel Scheffler puts it, to be the free upshot of all the free choices of individuals in any given moment. The question then, however, is what is the role of the platform's algorithmic design? Should the platforms design their spaces in ways that have foreseeably terrible effects on the trajectory of the public culture, or give the public culture some greater hope of being more civil, more respectful, more polite, more amenable to mutual understanding? And I don't think it's wild to think that the latter is a plausible course, if we can do it. And I don't think Crucial last point. I don't think we'll be able to do it especially well. As a result, I think that the free choices of individuals will still determine what the culture is. But I think the platforms can nudge things for the better. Jeff, you've been talking up to now about the duties, the moral duties of platforms. And you didn't mention free speech at all. And a lot of the discussion there does get framed in terms of free speech. Nick was mentioned the lawsuit against Texas. In Europe, people do discuss both the rights of the users but also they discuss the rights of platforms as well, which might include being right holders of the right to freedom of expression, in which case you might have a kind of a conflict of rights case. Is this a helpful way to approach this? Does the right to freedom of expression apply to the issue of regulating platforms? And if it does, in which way? I think it absolutely applies. And I think the main risk here is twofold. First, we don't want the state to compel the platforms to remove perfectly legitimate speech for which there is no compelling argument that it ought to be removed. But secondly, and I think the second issue is even more important, is suppose that we design regulations, the intended target of which are speech that's already illegal. It may be 
that the regulations incentivize platforms to substantially over-remove speech. So imagine something like the Netz DG law, which is the current law in Germany that requires platforms to remove unlawful hate speech within 24 to 48 hours or face massive fines up to tens of millions of euro. Now, any lawyer will tell you, of course, you're both lawyers, I'm not, that it's often a matter of debate whether something is or isn't illegal. And if a company has only 24 to 40 hours to decide whether this post that's been complained about is or isn't unlawful hate speech, the lawyers at the company are going to say, err on the side of caution and take it down. And I think we probably, it's fair to say, we probably have seen substantial over-removal of speech in Germany thanks to this law online. So I think it's very, very important that these regulatory arrangements not be so stringent that it gives the platform an incentive to over-remove all sorts of legitimate speech. Because if it did, then I think users whose legitimate speech was censored would have a complaint based on their free speech rights. Right. So this is a case where there's a freedom of expression issue in that the government may get the platform to suppress speech and the violation there is against the user. That's right. And it originates in the state actions to regulate the platform. What about the argument that when I use the platform as a user, I have a free speech right that the content be created in a particular way? In a what way? For example, allow more diversity of users right, 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 right. so that I'm more better informed, so I'm, I'm not disinformed or misinformed. And that's not really about the state. If the state is implicated here, is to force the platform to, to comply, yeah. comply. But that, of course, raises the question of whether freedom of speech is best understood on the consumer side as an interest on the part of the consumer of information to have a balanced diet, for instance. Historically, the philosophical justification of freedom of speech sometimes focuses on how great it is for us to be exposed to lots of ideas because that will guarantee that in the long term the better ideas will come on top. But of course, there is this other approach that says that the way to understand what freedom of speech is about is to focus on the producer, not the consumer. And it is specifically to restrict government to make sure that government doesn't interfere with production of speech. And who cares about consumption? A lot of people are moving away from this idea by using the developments in technology. So they say the problem in the old days was that you didn't have enough media. So you have people want to talk and address other people, and they have enough opportunity. Now that's not a problem. Everybody can have a platform. Now it's your attention span that's limited. You have too much information. So as a listener now, your interests are at, at stake, not as a speaker. And that's the result of the technological developments of the internet. So the positive side of freedom of expression gets traction by invoking this limited time span of people and say, given the, our limited time span, given how much speech there is out there, we want the platform to actually help us here. That's generally true in this space. Both sides to each of the issues we've been discussing appeal to the same things. So the fact that these people appeal to their technological advances doesn't impress me very much. (laughs) Do you have to believe that people in the past didn't have enough speech or opportunities to speak and to hear and to listen? Jeff, what do you think? So I think this does go back to whether these platforms do have the same kinds of moral duties to respect and support the communicative capacities of their users that the state does. And I suggested that there were some moral reasons to think that maybe they, they do when they reach a certain size and influence. I think that's very controversial. I think that this is a difficult issue on which reasonable people can disagree, and I have less confidence about what to think about this particular issue than I do about questions about what the state owes its citizens. It's plausible to think that if platforms suddenly decided that it wasn't going to let some citizens express their fully legitimate political points of view that caused no harm to others, we would at the very least want to say that those citizens' communicative interests were frustrated. And I would be inclined to say that they were wronged by the platform. Now, whether it's plausible to design a regulation that would force the platform not to do that, as I've said, I'm much more skeptical of. But I I don't think it's plausible to think that this is just a morality-free zone. My worry about framing the the moral imperative for regulation in terms of the positive right to freedom of expression of the users is that by framing it that way, you immediately move it to the territory of the law because you can make a legal challenge by invoking First Amendment or the Article 10 of the ECHR and say, I have a right that the platform behave in a particular way. And then you move away from the moral duty and you make it legal and you allow this manipulation by powerful actors who might use the courts to get the state involved. 
Yes. There's another issue here that I think is important, which is that we don't want to be unduly juridical in our approach to this topic. So it's very tempting to think of every time Facebook takes down a particular post as akin to the state deciding to punish a speaker. And I think it's very different. I think for starters, I think the costs and benefits are very, very different. It's one thing to have your post removed from social media, even if their post is removed in error, by the way, than it is to be unjustly incarcerated or convicted of a, cr of a crime for something you've said. I think we should be much more tolerant of error mm -hmm. in content moderation, mm -hmm. given that it has to, by nature, occur at such speed and scale through a combination of artificial intelligence and manual human content moderators working in mm -hmm. consultation mm -hmm. with the AI. So I do think that we should be a bit nervous about, for example, the new Digital Services Act in Europe provides users whose posts are removed with extremely robust appeal rights to challenge the platform's decisions to remove their posts, sometimes giving them up to six months to protest. And so it'll be one Facebook post that might have been removed in error, and we're still talking about it six months later, and there are going to be these panels, yeah. and meanwhile, billions of other posts have come <laughs> up. And so I think the way you know people in this debate put it is that we need a procedural systemic perspective here and thinking, what are the reasonable processes that we ought to expect the platforms to put in place to mitigate some of the challenges posed by harmful speech, thinking of in terms of an individual user's free speech right that can then be defended through ex post litigation may not be the best way to approach this as a policy matter. And maybe that's a reason to shy away from using strong language about the legal right to free speech in this domain. So that was wonderful, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can you tell us a little more about your project before we close? Thank you, Nika. Thank you, George. I've really enjoyed our discussion. So this is a project I'm going to be spending the next four years on to think about the ethics of content moderation by social media platforms and wider philosophical questions that arise in relation to regulating online speech. I'm currently working on a book about freedom of speech and its limits, both offline and online, in which I'll I'm beginning to explore some of these questions, but it's, as we've discussed, an extremely rich and complicated topic, and I hope more people in political philosophy and jurisprudence turn their attention to it. Jeff, it was really wonderful to have you as a guest in our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm George Letzas. And I'm Nikos Avropoulos. And this was The Jurisprudence, a podcast in legal philosophy.